this uh, This is Joe Cole. This is Ruben Loftus Cheek, and you're listening to the London, the London is Blue, Blue podcast. All right, Chelsea fans, welcome back to another episode. That's right, of the London is Blue podcast. Your host Dan here, alongside Nick. And Nick, we have a pretty special episode of the podcast that we are recording and distributing to our Chelsea supporters and listeners today. And uh, a really unique opportunity for us, too, to get a little into back into the books, a little into academics, a little into doing our our study, studying our thinking caps. We're doing all of it today. Yeah, it's It's been a while since I've been in a in a proper library. So we uh, we're going back to school a little bit. But uh, look, I think there was a huge amount of pride uh, from a lot of Chelsea supporters around the way that uh, Chelsea handled a lot of different projects during the the beginning part of the pandemic and basically all the way through to, you know, current state. Right. Um, uh, there are a lot of uh, fans who uh, contributed to these causes themselves and who supported the club and their endeavor to, to kind of help make things better at a time when they were just flat out awful. I think we can all put ourselves in, in that mind state uh, as it wasn't that long ago. But uh, we, we have a kind of a, a timeline and a in a published POV um, from from a very special guest Dan about how this all came together, the types of decisions that were made, and it's something that we that we wanted to address because it probably hasn't got as much pub as it as it needed to. Well, and again, not the reason why we think any of the club did it. It was out of the the service and being a, a wonderful civic leader and what they did. But we want to welcome Ian Eagle, who is a clinical professor at the Preston Robert Tisch Institute for Global Sport at NYU uh, School of Professional Services. We got the entire title in there, Lee. Welcome Whew, to the podcast. And uh, we're so happy to take this time to talk to you uh, about your paper and uh, learn a little bit more about some more of the specifics and behind the scenes that I think more than anyone realized that Chelsea did during the pandemic. Hi, well, great to join you. Thanks for letting me get in on your conversation. Well, we we are excited. How did the maybe just kind of jump you know before we kind of jump in? Like, how did the the paper come about? How did this type of content spark your interest for an academic kind of paper or analysis on what Chelsea did during this time frame? Yeah. So first, I try not to approach too much from an academic standpoint. Uh, really try to approach things from what's happening out in the world. And, um, and then try to understand the impact that it's having on people. Uh, so this really this came about because, well, first of all, there was the pandemic, which uh, you could not pay attention to even if you tried. And um, doing the work that I do in sport and, uh, and sports business and trying to work through and help people understand uh, the impact that sports and sports business has on, uh, on people and organizations and, uh, and society, uh, it sort of all came together. What was really interesting with uh, with the Chelsea example is that um, at uh, at the Tisch Institute in NYU, for the past four years, we've been looking at what Chelsea's been doing in its communities uh, as an example of social responsibility uh, and and kind of the real deal, the real meaning of it, and using that in our teaching. Uh, so when uh, when COVID struck. And then we saw Chelsea was really going out into the community and doing a lot of things that made a difference. Uh, oh, well, this is this is it. This is kind of, this is kind of the moment because 
in a crisis situation, everything gets accelerated, everything gets exaggerated, everything gets intensified. And you can, you know, I think we all learn, you can see a lot of how people really react uh, when, when, when the situation occurs. And so this was, uh, with thanks to, to the club, uh, an opportunity to ask, you know, could we talk to people throughout the club uh, to help understand the decision-making that went on in a moment that everybody in the world had an experience with? And could we just look at all these different, all of these different aspects about sports, sports business, community, society, it kind of all just went there. And um, that's, that's really how uh, this project came together, or at least how it started. Well, let's, let's go back in time a little bit, right? Um, you start off by profiling how everything at Chelsea starts with the owner, Roman Abramovich, right? Um, and that he has two key ambitions uh, for the club. One, of course, uh, creating uh, world-class teams on the pitch and uh, most recently winning the Champions League. We just have to say that because it's fun. Uh, the second is ensuring the club plays a positive role in all its communities, using football as a vehicle to inspire and engage. Uh, could you talk a little bit about how this type of approach compares to any other clubs that, that you might have done some research on at the time? I mean, there are some pretty famous stories of clubs kind of shrinking in, in this, you know, kind of the beginning part of this moment, and Chelsea kind of went the opposite direction. Yeah, it, it, well said. Um so a, few, a couple or a few things there. I'm going to work it backwards. One is uh, you got, if you can kind of put yourself in that moment. Not that anybody wants to go back to where we were in the beginning of uh, of COVID, but if you can, just remember all the the fear, the concern, the unknown of what was what was happening. And there's really a human tendency, and of course, it happens in organization. You kind of shelter in, literally. And figuratively, you kind of just go, it's all internal. How am I going to be okay? How am I going to be secure? It's all of this. And, um, and so that did happen, by the way. Uh, you know, in Chelsea, there was a lot of looking and checking. Uh, it was described as kind of the alarm bells are going off just like everywhere else. What do we do? Uh, but what's interesting about what happened is there were systems in place or mechanisms in place that started with those two ambitions that you mentioned that uh, really like there wasn't a lot of reinventing that needed to go on. It was about sort of knowing what was happening in a moment and then really running it through this system, this pattern of decision making. And um, you can really create a, a direct line from 2003 when new ownership takes over at Chelsea and uh, and these two ambitions from the owner start to work their way through the club and that direct line, uh, again, all the way through to what happened when uh, everyone realized this pandemic was was happening. Well, and, and, you know, the, when you talk about the ambition piece, you know, I think there's a, a subset of action that enabled this, too, because you talk about this idea of creating world class teams on the pitch. Well, without the infrastructure behind it, there is no world-class team on the pitch. So you need people through all disciplines and walks of life in the non-footballing aspects of the organization. And so, you know, from your perspective, you know, as we kind of talk about, you know, 
the quick response, the way the club made a transition in that moment from footballing organization or really transitioning their work from being a full-time footballing organization and a kind of part-time social advocate uh, through the foundation to being kind of a full-time foundation. How did that come about so quickly? You know, maybe more specifics. I know you talked to Bruce Buck, you talked to others in the club and had some really unparalleled access in mm-hmm. learning about how this all came together so quickly. Yeah, it's uh, I mean, a lot of it really starts with uh, with innovation and not just in kind of the buzzword. But I think if you think about uh, from an ownership perspective and again, uh, starting that chord, uh, well, in what, in what became uh, the new ownership in 2003, even that move is, uh, is something innovative. And it's the first time that foreign ownership really comes into the Premier League. And of course, it changed the entire landscape and changed the entire business. Uh, so that, you know, that sense of sort of seeing around corners and, um, and being able to, to see things and, and where to put resources in the first place um, is a really big point. And, and it's much more about just uh, this pattern, again, of, of innovation. And to make that work, you've got to have you know, the right people on the bus. So you have to make sure that there are people who really understand how to do that and buy into those values and buy into those ambitions and aren't just sort of doing it because, well, it's their job. And so you get into a, a bunch of things that sort of here comes like the management course on it, right? It's kind of you know balancing short term and long term. So that's uh, the first ambition, uh, which gets so of course a lot of attention in part because uh, for fans it's fun. It's what you see on the pitch, putting world class teams um, out there to play. Uh, a lot of the attention to it is oh well that's easy. You could just throw a lot of money. At it, but there's a difference between throwing money and spending money, and um, and you know deals work out, they don't work out. But really, this is much more about spending money because there is a structure in place and there are values in place, and the players have to. They can't only be good on the pitch; they also have to be good off the pitch, and they ha- and and in the lot in the in the locker room and in the training room, and um, and during training. So. Uh, all these things start to connect, but I think maybe another way to look at it is um, there's a uh, there's a line culture eats strategy for breakfast, mm. and that kind of connects to the earlier question about comparing to uh, what other clubs did. Uh, one of the interesting things I think in in understanding this project was that um, there isn't really in Chelsea a lot of uh, there's an awareness for sure of what other clubs are doing and there's a connection to what other clubs are doing. But when it comes to decision-making, there isn't a lot of paying attention because there's something, excuse me, there's something to compare. It's really about, this is how we make decisions. This is, these are what our values are. This is the direction we're headed in and this is what we need to do. And that's how you see that play out in response to the pandemic especially so early on, because once uh, the once ownership and the directors of the club realize that, you know, we can, okay, we're okay financially. That's the first job. We've got to make sure you can stay in business. And um, once that was in place, it was like, okay, now what can we do out in the community to make a difference? And I would even say, we can get into it, 
those things kind of tend to happen side by side. There's always kind of a financial look and a community or social look. I think that's the the really interesting part of your the, the beginning part of the the paper, right? The sh- the condensed timeline in which Chelsea begins like four or five uh, strategic initiatives during this time. I mean, it, it seems like it's all happening parallel paths between different stakeholders of the club, all rolling up to a a single kind of decision maker in, in Roman, right? Um, Were you shocked by how fast Chelsea were able to stand up these, uh, you know, various points of view? And we'll get into those in in more detail as we go. But just how fast it was able to come together. Uh, Can I give you like an it depends? Yes and no. I don't know. Um, uh, But in a more serious way, uh, it, it was not it was surprising and interesting looking at the timeline and sort of like, oh, my goodness. There's, you know, that it could, that what was done could be done and that it happened so quickly. But then pulling back on it, I think that's like if you're in real time, it's like, whoa, that is, is what, but if you pull back on it or look at it from like a 10,000 foot or 30,000 foot level, we're going to go, oh, and not to take it for granted at all, but it's going to go, oh, there's the pattern. Seen it in everything that Chelsea has done all the way through. Again, really, since like if it's not 2003, it's like 2004, 2005, you can see that pattern of decision making. You can see that pattern of action. Um, it's why the why the club become, is really ahead of the curve in so many areas. So um, again, to get into it, but uh, you know, a, a top tier women's team uh, already in place while so many others are sort of catching up. That's there because it's seeing around the corner and and having those values in place and and um, and having this sort of pattern of decision making in place. So then again, when you have a crisis like this pandemic that strikes, we go ah, again, it's not easy, but it's simple. So it's kind of it's simple but not easy. How about that? Um, because it's all there. It's not just flipping switches, but it's kind of close to it because. Everybody knows what to do. Everybody knows how to do it. You just got to make the decisions about that, you know, that kind of that moment and that detail. But the larger mechanisms in place, you're not scurrying around trying to figure out uh, some new model. One of the first things that you know we had a chance to see as fans from the outside looking in and demonstration of the commitment to doing the right things was how Chelsea handled their position with staff in the early days of the pandemic when, you know, I think, uh, thankfully, uh, the, the three of us uh, talking right now, um, you know, all probably were uh, employed throughout the entirety of this, uh, but, you know, friends, family members all weren't so lucky. And here comes Chelsea with 1900 or over 1900 employees uh full-time part-time um casual workers match day who then had to really concern themselves on are they going to have a paycheck are they going to be you know destitute here in addition to the other concerns they have about just fear of going out and living how was the club's response you know how quickly did that decision come together because we also saw examples of other clubs um, who you know used the the UK government's like furlough programs and really put people into kind of a world of hurt. And here's Chelsea saying we're, we're just not even going to 
considered that option. And you know, I think that was one of the first times where we're like, how is this not getting enough press? Like, this is like a really great decision. And, you know, then like other clubs will come back with this whole like, oh, well, we decided not to do it after we got bad press for it. Like Chelsea just did the right thing from the start. Yeah. It, it, further on that question about were you surprised or not surprised? I mean, to really get into it, uh, it, it sort of follows that same chord. The, the, deci- the decision was kind of in a way already made. Uh, and so in, in that way, not using the government programs uh, was the impression I got in, from, the, from the conversations uh, and with, uh, with people throughout the club was that it, it almost wasn't even an agenda item, uh, whether or not they were going to do it, they were going to take government funds or how to do it. It was like, no, 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 no. we're going to keep people receiving their paychecks. These are people who are part of our club. They're part of our community. Uh, this is what we do. And actually, the, the really interesting piece about it is uh, in sharing this uh, in, in you know, different groups and uh, people say, oh, well, that's easy because you know, the owner can fund it. But that's not really what this was about. Uh, it's, re- it's so much more. And it was really that uh, it was really about finding a, a way to fund paying people and keeping them, you know, receiving their paychecks because it mattered on a human level. And it mattered for ownership and for, and for the club leadership that people could know whatever was coming next, there was enough chaos, there was enough distress going on. Let's keep something stable, but it could also free up people to have less concern about what was happening in their homes so that they could go out and do things for the community. I mean, safely. So not always physically, but they, it would free their minds up and their time up to go, okay, you know, I don't have to worry about going where, where my next meal is coming from or, or how to put food on the table for the family. I can go off and do what I need to do in other areas. And that's a really, I mean, that, that's why people, you know, go to work in, in certain places um, because they know they matter. And that message, uh, again, it's not the first time that message came through, but in what a moment of crisis to have that message come through. um, It's really something else. Yeah, you you mentioned in in the paper, this is one of my favorite lines, actually highlighted it. Maintaining full employment despite main revenues streams being halted also stem from a sense of responsibility. Employment would provide people with income, dignity, and community, which could lessen the impact of the pandemic on their financial, emotional, and social well-being. In turn, which is what we're going to get to, uh, it would lead to their continuing to do things in, uh, to help society rather than add to its problems, right? So there's kind of a win-win here, right? You lessen the stress on everyone else uh, who, who works for the club. And then I think the directive is, all right, let's apply the energy in a positive direction, right? You know, if we're if we don't have match days to work on uh, over the next 100 days, Let's take that energy and channel it into any one of these uh, initiatives, and I and I think that's where we where we go next with this, right? Because the the first thing that pops up in the in the long line of of projects that Chelsea took on during this time is the NHS and Chelsea finding a creative solution to help 
uh, NHS workers in the area have a place to stay and eat, like some basic things that I think at the time were like, oh, yeah, we have the space and the facilities to pull this off. Can you maybe talk about is I, I loved in the paper just the, the quick decisions between Bruce Buck and, and a counterpart of his and how that quickly came together? Yeah. Uh, first of all, thanks for highlighting something that I wrote. That's, uh, oh, yeah. we'll have to talk about that on another day. Uh, <laughs> uh, I kind of need to think through what to do with that. Nick was a great student, apparently. He's highlighting pieces oh, of right. uh, his professor's work. <laughs> oh, um, I have to bring you into class one day and um, please use I'll, an example as well. All this proves is that I can read, which is you know, like the base threshold for this entire thing. But um, And highlight. <laughs> right. uh, but uh, yeah, you know, to what you, your point and to what you're asking, it's really interesting. First of all, uh, back to the point about innovation and the really interesting thing about freeing up people in an organization at every level uh, to be able to, to do you know, some other work. Uh, that's a really important point because that really is, that's where these innovations come from. It, it's about having people who have feet on the ground, being able to come up with things that they either didn't have, you know, they've thought about, but haven't had time to do or, or an opportunity to do. So um, there again, this isn't just, you know, people kind of rolling out of bed and going, oh, we should try this today. There's really this sense of innovation that works its way through the club. And that's important because uh, now we get into things about the NHS, which is really beyond uh, the unpaying people uh, in the club. The first thing in the larger community that Chelsea does, and uh, that also really came together quickly. Uh, at least, you know, the, the description of it is, uh, first of all, it starts out in um, very early on as if we go back, remember, uh, it's leagues, it's sports leagues across the world. First is the NBA, basically the United States. It says, you know, we're done. We've got one player who tested positive on one team and we're suspending the season indefinitely. Whoa. And then it's this succession. You can kind of see it go across from the U.S., just across the Atlantic into Europe. And it's, you know, within hours Um it's all happening. So the so Premier League, it it's you know we know it's going to shut down. Uh, the final word on it hasn't come down yet, but it, it's happening. And so that's the context a little bit for these sorts of discussions. And then when the word comes, uh, one of the things that that ends up happening in uh, in these leadership meetings is um, they've gone through kind of the financials. And again, for every for every issue, every item, there's a financial check and kind of a, a community or a social check, right? Is it all going to balance out? Uh, and one of the things that comes up is they sort of got it relatively settled. And um, the owner says, We're, let's do things that, that make a difference. And from there, again, this is a pattern that we've seen over time where now the leadership of the club takes that and it starts to sort of fan out the club. And one of the things I just realized was, well, what do we have right under our feet? What can we do right here? And 
that's again one of those sort of simple, not easy things. And if you have the benefit of being able to look back, you go, oh, of course, would have thought of that. But again, in real time and prospect, these are things that get easily missed. And uh, it just gone through what was happening operationally uh, with the stadium, which parts of it were open, which were closed, which personnel would be around. And of course, uh, there are there are hotels on site at Stanford Bridge, and no guests are being permitted in uh, as uh, as London and, and the nation go into lockdown. And so there are these empty hotel rooms, but again, there are personnel, there are people who are around. Um, and the idea comes, what could we do with those hotel rooms? Is there anything we could do? And you couldn't miss on the news that the National Health Service was being slammed with patients. Uh, I, and this was, of course, a big concern everywhere in the world, uh, that, that hospitals and clinics and uh, and every healthcare facility was just going to be slammed with people, uh, and so much of it unknown. And so, the, so it was coming across in the news the news reports that they were watching. And um, said, you know, what if we just reached out to the NHS and said we can offer some space? Now, at the at the National Health Service, um, Julian Redhead uh, is one of the physicians, and he's also uh, an administrator. And he oversees a certain area uh, nearby, uh, this regional area um, around Stamford Bridge. And uh, Bruce Buck make, places a phone call to him, to, to Julian Redhead. And they, uh, Julian Redhead has been a consultant to Chelsea for some time. So this wasn't uh, no pun to, out of the blue, uh, but uh, it places a call. And, and again, remember, the moment is it's still crisis time. So much fear, so much unknown, and the and Chelsea is not playing football at the moment. So what an odd call to get, right? This would be think, oh my gosh, he's calling something personal, there's some issue. But Bruce Buck calls Julian Redhead, and uh, and I won't do justice to the exchange which we've got in the paper. Uh, basically says, look, we've got an idea here at the club that we could offer some hotel rooms to the NHS. We see what's happening that uh, there are key workers at the NHS who are overwhelmed. They don't have time and space to rest. Their you know, food may be scarce. Uh, we just recognize the situation. We'd like to offer hotel rooms. You know, uh, since you're connected to the NHS, we know you, who could we talk to to offer up this invitation? And by the way, uh, Chelsea and ownership are going to fully fund it. So this is not, NHS is not on the hook. Uh, we've got it covered. We just want to offer the space and, and meals. And Julian Redhead says, uh, it, I'm your guy, says it better actually. In but it turned out, you know, as these things happen, that Julian Redhead was the person who was coordinating uh, not only care in, in the area, but, uh, but staff operations. And one of the issues that they had was usually if you're uh, if you're a medical worker, you know you can find a bed to kind of put down, and if you're on a on a quick shift, or uh, you can find some space to get food, but none of that was really available because of what was happening, and uh, and here came Chelsea with this offer, is that you know we can provide this space, we can provide this place, and um, and Julian Redhead said, you know this is. 
that's a missing link because they've been trying to figure it out. He had tried to figure it out with, uh, with other coordinators in the area. How can we make this happen? And they were really trying to make it happen and they were getting, they were getting some way and doing it. But uh, his description of it was more like, you know, Chelsea just kind of released this valve and, um, and oh my gosh, it just kind of came together. Now we had a place and on we went and, uh, uh, you know, maybe still in the, a little bit of the, the next question, I don't know. But one of the interesting things was that um, before they even announced it within the NHS channels and could send out email, people had heard about it and were calling the hotel. So the key workers were already calling the hotel and ringing up, and that sort of doubled up what the hotel needed to do. But um, anyway, it's uh, it's something that just came together really nicely. It's a really powerful example. You know, you've talked about this idea of innovation throughout the club of just you know being able to say, look, look, this is what we got. We can do something pretty quickly with it. Hey guys, this is Jake. Uh, Dan forgot the ad break. Let's jump to the ads real quick and be right back with this great discussion. I'd like to dig in. You also mentioned this uh, concept of how this sparked other you know organizations, other hotels, other individuals to maybe offer similar types of elements to space food to the NHS directly the way that Chelsea did. But you also highlighted the fact that this was 11,000 plus room nights that Chelsea donated to the NHS. It was food. It was beverage. Uh, I think Nick pulled out one of his favorite quotes, which was just that the club provided little gifts from the, the club shop to these key workers so that they could take something home to family when they had time to do so because, you know, they were spending so much time away from their families, away from their loved ones, and they wanted to make it special. Like, just the, the overall care and thoughtfulness the club showed in this operation, I mean, it, it seems to be just very, very much, again, part of that innovation, but kind of unparalleled in the level and the quality of the response that the club were able to execute on. Yeah. And by the way, did you highlight that one also? That's um, Nick oh, highlighted yeah. that one. I'm yes. Like, yeah, kind yeah. Of excited. There's more highlighting. It's not just one time. More highlighting. Yep. But, um, but uh, yeah, to it, it really is. I mean, it's really thinking about all of those, those kinds of, you think they're kind of little things, but they matter so much. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and just that sense of, Right. thinking in the somebody by the way had to bring uh all of those items from Stanford Bridge oh you know internally in the storehouse in the storeroom uh over to the hotel and it isn't necessarily a long walk but uh in COVID time you've got to still have somebody on the ground when the rest of the city's in lockdown and you've got people who are again thinking of these things um, so all these seemingly little things that have a big impact really end up mattering. And it's it's more than just a sweet moment. It's um, it's really the sense that these are key. There were key workers who would be coming here. They would be drained. They were already away from their families for long periods of time. If they could get home, it was you know some of them weren't able to get home because of either public transportation issues or. Uh, or because their shifts just required them to be uh, at the the hospital. And so this idea that when people were key workers or people, you have guests in your hotel on site and that they would at some point be returning home to family and that family would have missed them, but 
you could come home with a gift because, you know, who doesn't like for family to come home from some time away? And if you have a little gift with you, that's it. And one of the interesting things also is um, in, in sharing that story and there's with different groups, uh, it, there's always somebody who's suspicious and they're like, that's ah, a brand building exercise. They're thinking of, you know, brand building. And more to this point, it really does come from saying about responsibility uh, and the sense of responsibility, because really the idea that anybody would be thinking about a brand building exercise or, you know, sending these gifts because it would build the brand in a moment of, you know, once in a century crisis, uh, it doesn't line up and it's really not at all what happens, but the furthest thing from, uh, from what crossed anyone's mind in Chelsea. The, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll move on from the NHS piece, which is obviously I think our first foray into, into support during the pandemic and move on to the, to the project with refuge. So I think a lot of our fans and supporters would know that, uh, Refuge is a charity in the UK that focuses on supporting children and women who are experiencing uh, and or victims of uh, domestic abuse. And so there was a um, kind of a, a red flag to a lot of people who worked at Refuge that the amount of calls or, or support needed during this, you know, the beginning part of the pandemic wasn't rising to the level they thought commensurate with, with what might be happening at home. Right. You know, um, if, if, a, you know, for a lot of those households, it's terrible to say if the abuser is away at work or away traveling or whatever, there, there's an opportunity for those people to get help when they're at home, maybe not as much. Right. And so that was a, a kind of like red flag, uh, that, that was brought up. And uh, I think this was a huge, uh, kind of next step for Chelsea and in, in the journey, right. To figure out how they could support, uh, what is, uh, what, what you term as a risk averse organization and, and refuge. And, uh, could you maybe talk about the process of how that came together with, uh, with Rolla Brentland and, and the entire system there? Yeah. So, uh, the project with refuge, uh, really came up again because there were there was a group, a small group of people from within the club, who had been reading through the news as you know, so many people were, and it just spoke to them. There were some real stories uh, about uh, about domestic abuse, and they were. And this was something that refuge, because the people at refuge thought this is actually a moment where we are really concerned about what could happen in people's homes as they're in lockdown, uh, and we need to get some messaging out to the public about what really happens. And, and the way to do that is to make these stories as horrible as they are, make them real. And, and you know, a lot of times because of the work of refuge, there's a good ending to it. Um, but the stories are real and they were out there. And so there's some people within Chelsea who were who pick up on them and reading about them. And in their conversations from their own lockdown, um, as they're communicating with each other, and saying, oh my gosh, this story, you know, these stories, this is something, gosh, we should do something. And because of the communication channels within Chelsea, um, it, you know, it's not, it's not sort of this hierarchy where there are people at the top and they're kind of closed off and then there's a next layer and there's, there's a real communication flow. So really quickly, again, um, and we're talking 
this happens this happens like in hours and days uh, in the throes of a of this crisis, this public health crisis. Uh, this conversation comes up, and um, and really quickly, it, this is almost one of those. The next morning, um, Rolla Brentlin uh, from Chelsea uh, places a call to refuge, uh, again, kind of out of the blue, that. Uh, Calling on behalf of Chelsea, we would like to help uh, and see what we could do uh, to help refuge because some people within our club uh, have recognized that this is an issue. And I think one of the interesting things about it also is that uh, this sense of identifying which projects to go to and which ones connect is really important because there are so many needs out there just in general on a regular basis. Uh, you need to go, well, why this one? If you're suspicious, you can go, oh, well, that seems like a good one to go on to and women's and we can, you know, elevate the women's team. And you can start to get into that sort of marketing mindset. But that's not at all really what it was. It was that there was a need in the community and the and people in the club saw within the values that the, the club holds. This was an opportunity to do something. And again, off of that idea. Where can we do things that really make a difference, not just do things? Uh, and uh, that that piece from ownership. And so uh, uh, we can get into what happened next and and how this project unfolded, but it really came together uh, because a phone call was placed off of a conversation that happened among people in Chelsea. and um, call was routed through. Rolla Brenton's call was routed through. Uh, to Louise Firth, uh, who heads up fundraising at Refuge. And um, the project took off from there. And again, very quickly. You know, that was a, an interesting point in the paper as you kind of walked us through the evolution of this phone call between Rolla and the Refuge's director of fundraising, Louise Firth, about the start of the partnership. But then you also get to read into, and I think some people are wondering, well, what were players doing? What were staff doing? Individuals who maybe had the footballing element of it, but maybe not weren't always in the day-to-day -day operational roles. How were they contributing? How were they playing a part in this piece? And the idea that Chelsea was going to do these campaigns to build awareness about how it's not just a, 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 men, a men's problem to fix domestic abuse. It's not a women's problem. It's an everybody problem to address it. And when Chelsea said, hey, we've got some volunteers identified quickly, not just players, but, you know, the coaching staff and, and you know, Emma Hayes in particular as mm -hmm. individuals who are going to champion this, be involved, contribute their time in support. I guess from your perspective, like, how unique was that element of it? And I, I mean, because, again, it just seems like it, again, all stems from the top and kind of goes back to this at Chelsea are building world-class teams and world-class teams are not just great footballers, but they are exemplary individuals as well. Well, the, so there are a few things about that that are really interesting. One of them is uh, that domestic abuse is an everybody problem. And, and for me, that there was a really interesting insight uh, that the people at Refuge uh, really put into what became this paper, uh, which was that uh, it is an every, domestic abuse is an everybody problem. You know, what kind of world do you want to live in where uh, where these kinds of, of horrific acts occur? 
Uh, and even more than that, that uh, there's there's a sense, I think it got based on research at some point that, uh, you know, domestic violence increases uh, when people are watching sports events, which is, you know, and, and to be particular about it, like you know, men commit more acts of domestic violence when they're watching a sports event and especially when their team is losing. And one of the things from that was that's not really the case at all because domestic violence is a pattern of, of misbehavior. And, um, and that was a really important point from refuge. And here again, uh, this is an opportunity because, because Chelsea's coming and wants to partner on something. Uh, it's an opportunity to help get that kind of message across. So it's not only about fundraising and, and getting development dollars in, it's that we have, you know, we have so much to be done in this area as an organization, and Chelsea can partner with us to do this and, and changing people's minds about the realities of domestic violence and abuse and what it is was a really important key. Um, when, it start, when this project started to come together, the next piece of it is, that you know, probably especially for listeners of uh, of this podcast, it's sort of like you know, Chelsea calls, you sort of go yes, and then ask, what do you want to do? But um, you know, that's not always the case, and um, and it wasn't really the case here because Refuge had to go through its own checks and balances and make sure that uh, that everything in a potential partnership could come together, um, and that it would be done the right way. And that it wasn't also just uh, some an or, a, a sports club trying to look good, uh, among other things. So that piece is in there. But once it did come together, and uh, and again through these uh, these discussions, uh, the question about getting players and personnel on board. Uh, I'm going to go back and say again, it's part of a long-term pattern. Uh, it isn't really an interesting thing about Chelsea is that uh, if if and when something comes from the top, from ownership and, and the directors, uh, there isn't really follow up from uh, from team members and personnel, from players and personnel, uh, because the owner said to do this, or because you're kind of reading, oh well, they, you know, there's my boss up there says. You know, we're supposed to do this, and it kind of comes top down that way. Uh, it really is because these are people who see something that they feel they need to be connected to, and they and they feel that it matters. And it's sort of side by side. Well, it matters to the club, and I'm part of this club, so it all really comes together in that way. Uh, for this refuge project. Uh, Emma Hayes, the manager of the women's team, uh, got word of it pretty early on and said, uh, you know, I got this. Let me let me help with it and mentioned it to uh, to her players who were quick to get on board. And then uh, the men's some of the men's players said, well, well, hang on a second. We want to do this, too, because we recognize it's important. And what was interesting was, um, again, especially in this moment of, uh, of crisis, it was very human. It was because there were personal experiences that so many of them had had with domestic violence. And, and I think if I understood correctly, 
they weren't, uh, it, it wasn't anything that had happened specifically, thank goodness, to any of the players or personnel, but it had happened to family and friends of theirs. And so, you know, talk about getting the right people on the bus and, and not only from an on-the-pitch standpoint, but Emma Hayes, uh, part of why she hooked into this project so much was because uh, you said when I was younger, and by the way, I'm not even trying to be as eloquent uh, as, as she would be or to use her words because, you know, she's way better at, the, at messaging. But she really effectively said, uh, I remember when I was a child that we had a family member who, uh, who was being abused and who escaped with her children and they came to live with us. And I just remember not only that, but this fear in, in I came from, you know, a comfortable, healthy home. Uh, but I remember that fear of thinking this per this violent person could come at any time and, and come through the door and try to switch that up. And so here you have Emma Hayes with this incredibly personal experience for, that she's carried with her since she was younger. And now there's the moment. And, you know, who better to carry a message than Emma Hayes on and off the pitch? And then it just filters out into the into the team from there. And I'd add one of the interesting things also is that uh, starting with the preseason, Emma Hayes's message to the team uh, was about being grateful. And being grateful for what you have as players that uh, you play for. If you play a sport that you grew up playing, uh, you can do it professionally. You're getting paid to do it at a top club. Uh, you know, what a good life. Let's be grateful. And the rest of it, you know, we can kind of figure out. So that's been her message from the preseason that year. And here you go in this moment again of crisis where, okay, we've got this message about being grateful. This is the project. Here's a platform. Well, I mean, I think where that leads is just the end outcome of this partnership, right? And uh, there are a lot of different ways that Chelsea contribute financially and through uh, messaging, through support from players and staff. But, um, you know, in addition to the club, you know, the owner matching a lot of donations for a campaign that happened. Uh, the club did something really savvy. Um, and I think this is, you know, again, if you just give good people a way to contribute a lot, we'll do the right thing. And so Chelsea went through this thing where, you know, of course, matches weren't being played and they they were pretty sure there weren't going to be fans in the stands for some time. Right. So they had to refund uh, season ticket holders. And the savvy part of this is, of course, you, you know, if you're a season ticket holder and you're not able to go to, I think 14 matches or whatever, eight matches, you'll get the, you know, the reimbursement for that. But the club did offer a number of charitable avenues to where you could donate the rest of your, uh, your reimbursement. And a lot of people just chose to donate to refuge, right. As a, as a part of that, you see, you said in your paper, a majority uh, did that. And so in addition to that, in addition to the Chelsea women donating their WSL prize money, which was a you know, hundred grand roughly, uh, and all that, how, how much did Chelsea end up raising on behalf of, of refuge? Yeah. Uh, well, the initial, the initial amount is, uh, it's around 600,000 pounds. I know we're us based here, but I'm going to go with pounds since, uh, it sounds 
pounds. Uh, you know, a little more than uh, than five hundred thousand dollars, but um, and, and still going in some ways. So though that initial campaign ended, uh, it, it, these these things are still going. So by the way, the NHS program still going. Mm-hmm. Uh, this refuge uh, campaign uh, donations are still coming in, and um, and it's allowed refuge uh, a completely different platform and, and level of awareness than it's had. Uh, really at any time in the past. This is one of the largest donations uh, in the history of refuge. Uh, but you know, doesn't that say so much, by the way, about Chelsea and its communities, uh, which span everywhere uh, in the world, that people could just take their money back, hang on to it for next year, but uh, they were not compelled to do, to do so. Uh, here's an option. We could take our money you know, that was going towards season tickets and instead uh, divert it to, uh, to a handful of campaigns and uh, refuge is the one that ended up receiving the most, uh, you know, what a message to send. And, and certainly an important thing I think, for the leadership of Chelsea, because uh, in, the message, in the messaging about it, uh, it was very clear that that was part of kind of like opening statements. It wasn't, oh, we've done... This, this amount and, and, you know, our owner donated this much. It was, look at what people in our community have done. So this is bigger than just, again, that kind of top down and, and you know, people at the top sort of forcing something. It really is about the full meaning of a club and, uh, and, and its community. So kind of talking about community and maybe more of the, the longstanding project that Chelsea's had in place, which is the, the Chelsea Foundation headed up by Simon Taylor. You know, fans of, of Chelsea would know about the Say No to Hate, the anti-Semitism campaign, mm-hmm. the support of Rainbow Laces, the partnership with Plan International. There's a lot of good work that's already happened. But as the pandemic came into view and they start calling up, as you write about, the schools that they're going to have to cancel in-person events with. They're finding out about socioeconomic disparities and kids who aren't going to be learning. And again, it gave Chelsea another opportunity to spring into action for this youth community of students and try to kind of come up with a solution there. But then also finding solutions for the elderly and individuals who maybe were going to be wondering where their next meal was coming from. Those are two interesting items that I pulled out out of your section on the foundation. Can you talk a little bit more about like how all that came to be and kind of the quick response there too? This is another really kind of just such an impressive thing that comes out of you're looking at an organization and, and how it does its work. Uh, the speed that the foundation got going on uh, is I'm still fascinated by it. And uh, what's interesting also is, again, I don't think anybody in within Chelsea takes it for granted, but uh, when we were having these conversations that ended up making it into the paper, uh, it was still sort of fairly early on in the pandemic, um, but it was at as actually Bruce Buck about it. And um, his response was, this is what Simon and the people in the foundation do. It's just what they do. And uh, it was such an insight because it just sort of reinforced 
how so many of these values and systems and mechanisms are in place across Chelsea and the speed that they were able to, to react with. So um, for Simon Taylor and, um, and the people within the foundation, they, it, like so many of us, they flipped, they kind of flipped remote, right? They went virtual and had to figure out things in real time. So also taking care of family, taking mm-hmm. in addition to themselves, taking care of, uh, of things going on just around them and, uh, and also managing things at work. And now your work is going out into the community. And this is happening, by the way, within, this is again, hours into like the first few days of shutdown of the Premier League and lockdown of the, of the city of London. Uh, so Chelsea Foundation had, runs at more than 500 programs in 20 countries every year. And, um, and that kind of range was, you know, these aren't just kind of drop in sorts of things. Uh, they're consistent. And to me, one of the kind of one of the examples, the real examples was about going into schools and, uh, the real sort of the light bulb went off me when Simon Taylor explained that, you know, we have these, we've been in schools, we're in schools, our, the, the people who are teachers and coaches and educators uh, in all of these communities, they know the neighborhoods, they know the people because we keep going, you know, keep going back. And um, so when they tried to understand what was going on in the schools, which ones are open, which ones are closed, wh- you know, which ones have uh, children of key workers, which ones have uh, you know, children who need so- you know, special services, all of this. There's this network within the foundation that already exists. So the messaging and communication is already taking place. Right? Uh, that to me was an incredible insight into how, they, how the foundation while going remote so quickly, was able to get, it's sort of like an intelligence gathering operation and it's happening in real time and they can know where to go with it and how to do it and um, and what needed to be done. So you could know, okay, this school is open and we need to get online sources to them because uh, teachers can't teach in a typical way or this school is closed and we need to get online sources then because teachers are pushing that kind of information out. Or when you realize, you know, uh, you've, you've got kids who are holed up in their homes or their apartment buildings, and um, they can't really get out and go anywhere because we're in lockdown. Uh, what can we do to give them some physical activity and, and some, you know, and, and things for their minds to do? And so the speed was just incredible. But again, it's because... It, those systems were already in place. And so they had to adjust. I mean, it's incredibly impressive, the speed with which they did it. And I would never take that for granted. And, and hopefully that comes out in some of what's in that paper. But uh, it's because those systems were in place already and they had the right people to do it. So fa- fast forward, right? I mean, you know, we, we get through Project Restart. Chelsea, of course, uh, gets through uh, a, a tumultuous uh 2020 2021 season culminating with uh with winning the champions league 
Uh, and you got that in twice this episode. Good job, Nick. <laughs> I don't know if you've heard, Dan, but um, but recently Chelsea have won the Champions League. Um, the smile on your face and the buildup as soon as you started, uh, you know, yeah, no tell there. He did yeah, tell, tell, yeah, a huge telegraph. Like he's a boxer. Yeah. <laughs> the swing has been like so obvious. <laughs> Guys, I have to, I have to throw it in every chance I get. Um, but I mean, in, in a, you know, in a similar timeline, vaccinations have started happening right around the UK, around the world, uh, and Chelsea again, you know, furthering this work, right? Because I know we've talked, you know, to this point largely about some of the successes at the beginning of the pandemic, but as you as you referenced earlier, there's a ton of work happening at Chelsea all the way to present day uh, on on helping to curb the pandemic, even though there are fans back in the stands and it feels a little bit more normal. Uh, Chelsea utilized their space again in a really smart way. Yeah, and, uh, and so Stamford Bridge became uh, a vaccination site and uh, or was used as a vaccination site. And uh, in a way, kind of an interesting, this is not full circle because the work continues, but um, we have a project going on, a long-term project uh, at NYU about the, the impact of stadiums in cities mm. and, um, and sort of uh, beyond the economic. It's uh, you know, what are the social impacts and the community impacts. And so this was kind of a twofer uh, looking at things in, during COVID because we could see you know, how were stadiums used in ways that were different than the norm. And of course, uh, as vaccination sites, it was a big deal in a lot of places. And uh, this is pretty special, certainly at Stanford Bridge and was a full circle because we started out with NHS hotel rooms right there at Stanford Bridge while it was shut down. And now here as there's Project Restart coming back out of it, here's another way to use Stanford Bridge while it's coming back to its usual use. And um, again, partnering with the NHS uh, to distribute and, and vaccinate, distribute vaccines and to vaccinate people. Uh, so, you know, number into the thousands, people in the community coming to get their first jab uh, and then follow up jabs uh, of the vaccine is really important. And uh, some of the meaning in that isn't, I think, kind of again, the easy thing to look at is go, well, that makes sense. It's a big site. You can bring in a lot of people. They know how to get big crowds in and out. But what gets missed a lot is that really that sort of emotional value of mm -hmm. the stadium and how important it is. So um, whether you're a Chelsea supporter or not, you know, maybe you're a neighbor, you live in the community, certainly you know that Stamford Bridge is part of the community. You can't miss it. And there's a massive sense of trust that people have in uh, in stadiums and alongside in the clubs that that play there, and um, this is certainly one of them. So it's not that people are necessarily reluctant to go to a hospital, and hopefully they're not, uh, especially getting vaccinated. But there's just you know there's something different uh, and positive about I got vaxxed at you know at Stamford Bridge. You got a story. And, uh, you know, Instagram, TikTok, I guess, uh, if, if you really need it. And, um, and there's something really important about that. So for the club to open up Stamford Bridge and to partner again with the NHS uh, to get people vaccinated and to send that message 
uh, is is enormously powerful and speaks a great deal to the power of sports and the power of sports in cities. And, uh, and by the way, it was just you know I think it was like days prior they had had uh, they'd opened up Stamford Bridge so that uh, some of the key workers at NHS could uh, could play in sort of a mini tournament uh, using the pitch, which you know, that doesn't happen often either. Uh, that beloved pitch grass. Um, so it, it's, it's not, it's not thing just thing. a moment in Ted Lasso, Lee. It, it, it is not. It, it actually not happened. As, as he peers from you, uh, from over your shoulder, um, I see in the poster, but, um, yeah, it is not just, uh, things from Ted Lasso. It really is. Uh, it, it really speaks to, uh, to the power of a club and, and the power of the stadium and the impact it can have on its community. Well, Dan, that was the, you know, as we kind of move into the last question, that was one of the things that we, we noticed from our friends who got to go back, um, last May, right. Which is the first game that had fans and over a year, you know, a lot of people had commented that they were going home. Like it was a, it was like a borderline religious experience to go back to the stadium, to see their friends, to see their mates, to to have like a semi-normal game day experience, even if it wasn't like a full stadium. And so it does kind of back up the emotional resonance that, that, you know, a pile of bricks can, can have on a person. Yeah. The, the pilgrimage back to the bridge for that first game. Mm -hmm. And as you know, we kind of mentally think about our return, uh, for the first time since September of 2019. Um, you know, Lee kind of rounding this out, you know, Chelsea obviously have served as an example to others. They worked through action, not necessarily just by saying what they were going to do, but just going to do it. And now we're, talking with you and talking with others about this is what we did. This is what we learned. How do you see, or where do you see their ability to instill this type of stewardship for the community and social civic responsibility into the rest of football and into other organizations? Cause I think they now can say, here's our track record. Here's us serving as a leader in this area. How do they then pivot that to help not just inspire, but, I think teach, I think, is the other thing where, you know, you talk about this idea, this thread of an understanding and an awareness to how this has to work or how this has to be kind of a core value. How do they go about instilling this and training this into others? Yeah, it's here again, Chelsea, you know, being ahead of the curve on things, because we talk about social responsibility. Uh, it, Say you know so much of the emphasis uh, is on social, it, so it becomes like cause marketing or community relations, uh, brand awareness, this kind of stuff. And really, what we've seen, and it was happening before the pandemic uh, across sports, but there's more of an emphasis on the responsibility part. And um, and you really have to have as an organization uh, the values and structures and people in place to make that happen and to get that difference. And that's really kind of the special thing, again, that we've been going on in Chelsea since um, since 2003 and with those two ambitions all the way through. So, um, you know, the, the lesson from it is when you see something like the Say No to Anti-Semitism campaign or No to Hate or Rainbow Laces, those all came about because of actually the same kind of question uh, and same observations, same kind of question that happened during the pandemic, which is uh, 
the owner and leadership looking out and saying, we see a problem in that, that affects our business that has an impact on the community. I mean, that's social responsibility. Your, your organ, an organization is an organ of society. So it has an impact on, on everyone else. And, um, and, you know, again, the owner thing, we see this problem out there. What can we do to make a difference? And uh, asking that question and, and really meaning it, uh, I think is the lesson. And, and that's, what, uh, that's what spreads. And you can see it spreading. Um, again, Chelsea is not alone, thank goodness, in doing this, but there's no question uh, that Chelsea is a leader in, uh, in this way forward, for sure. Well, we have learned so much and are so appreciative of the time to dig into your piece after reading it, Lee, and learning a little bit more and learning from your conversations that you had with Bruce and Rolla and Simon and leaders in the NHS and Refuge and other organizations. So we just want to thank you for taking time away from your students and from your professional day-to-day -to, -day to allow our audience, who are all ardent Chelsea supporters, to learn a little bit more, maybe fall a little deeper in love with the club uh, and kind of uh, think you know, even on a deeper level about what that badge and crest means after hearing some more of the intricacies about how the club responded during the pandemic. So uh, we can't thank you enough for the time today. Oh, you're welcome. And thanks to you for inviting me and opening up this, uh, this discussion and uh, giving a place to do it. And also for reading and highlighting. <laughs> Nick is never going to let us live that one down. He is always going to remind us that he was the one to do highlighting. <laughs> Look, Dan, it's tough. It's tough to be a, a really good student. Um, I don't know if you know anything about it, but um, but look, it's it's nice, uh, Lee, to catch up, and and uh, we will uh, we'll tap you again when it's when it's time to kind of do the do the second version of this, right? Which is the continued story. Well, thanks. Only looking forward to it, and uh, travel safely and well to London. Try to enjoy your time there. <laughs> we'll try. Uh, I don't yeah, know. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> All right, Chelsea fans. Well, that is going to do it for this episode. We appreciate you so much. We appreciate Lee for his time. Until next time, though, you know what to do. Keep the blue flag flying high.